You're listening to So What? The podcast that explores why library and information science research matters. We interview researchers about their work. And they connect the dots between what they do and its importance to your life. Okay, let's get on it. Welcome to The Greatest Crossover, Philosophy and Library Science. I'm Michael Tepper, and I will be our host for today. I'm an MLIS student here at Western in my second semester, and I'm joined here today by a very dear friend of mine, Lindsay. Hi, um, my name is Lindsay Hache. I'm in my third year of uh, the PhD program uh, in philosophy here at Western University. Um, and thanks so much, Tepper, for having me on here to have this really interesting <laughs> conversation. Thank you for joining me. Like you've shown a lot of interest in, in in library science, and it's been very fun to talk to you about this stuff. Well, I mean, every time that you start to talk about what you are studying, I go, "Oh my gosh, that sounds so philosophy!" And then we get into a very long conversation about everything that you're up to. So. Exactly. And, and that's what's inspired uh, this podcast is um, philosophy, because I, I really feel that library science is to and, and information science in general is uh, applied philosophy in that uh, underpinning without even realizing it. Sometimes we are, you know, doing practical applications of philosophy and how we organize information and how. Uh, connections are made between books in how our classification indexing systems work. You know, if you look at the LCC and it's like equivalent terms and hierarchical terms and what is what and, and how we choose to put books on a bookshelf reflect decisions made or, or, or ideas before we even got to that stage. So for this podcast day, I figured we would look at three particular topics that are critically important in classification and indexing. And they are ontology and epistemology, um, equivalence, and warrant. Um, all three topics are uh, huge parts of classification and indexing. And I really... Uh, I'm somebody who is not very good at theoretical philosophy. You know, I, I was saying to Lindsay the other day, I said, uh, you know, you start doing A plus B equals C to me, uh, that kind of stuff. And uh, my brain just shuts off uh, and, and I can't, I can't, or, or it's difficult for me to follow. But give me a practical application of that or like a very good metaphor. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm right on board. And that's where I really wanted to bring in somebody who's working on a PhD in philosophy, who absolutely loves Aristotle, and see how they feel about how philosophy is applied within these critically important topics in library science. Uh, Tepper, let me just jump in here and say that I've... Uh... I've shed an equal number of tears when it comes to formal logic, but I do like talking about this stuff at the abstract <laughs> level. So, uh, yeah, and and it, it's very interesting stuff. Don't get me wrong; it's just 
reading a philosophy paper or uh, article or whatever. And I just like, Oh my God. Oh my God. I, I, I don't, this is a lot. Every page feels like reading 10 pages. Okay. I'm not going to lie. Aristotle has also brought me to tears. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but enough about that. Let's, let's, let's jump into our first topic so we can really get this discussion going. And our first topic is going to be ontology and epistemology. So let's start with ontology in this, in this pairing. Uh, what is ontology? Uh, before I did this program, I had no idea what an ontology was. Uh, now I somewhat understand what an ontology was. And an ontology is the study of what categories of entities exist and how each of them is related to each other. Fundamental to library science. Uh, so much of categorization organization is figuring out what categories of entities exist and how they're related to each other. Like if you look at a library shelf, uh, you know, uh, say you're looking for history in particular, Russian history. Well, those are going to be on the shelf together. Why? Because they are related to each other. The entity which exists history on Russia, uh, maybe a particular uh, area. So uh, I want, you know, um, uh, Russian Civil War or like like early communist Russia, those are going to be neatly together on the shelf because they are like each other, because the connection has been made by the cataloger. These things are alike, therefore they should be put together. They're all histories, they're all in Russia, they're all in Russia in this particular period, therefore they go together. So, as I was saying, like fundamental to library sciences, the foundation of 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 how how we do it. Um, yeah, uh, the objective, of course, is to, like make sense of the world of its objects and of its relations between objects. But I only really know it in library science and only at most basic levels. So, I want to hear what Lindsay has to say. Yeah, so I I think with your example of um, historical historical events on a bookshelf. Um, you use the language of, well, they're next to each other because they're alike. Um, and I think when it comes to looking at um, looking at these topics through the ontology lens, I, we want to go a step further than just saying that they're alike, but that they are of the same kind, right? Which is different. These, uh, these historical events are fundamentally of the same kind in, in that they are events that took place in this place at this time because of these reasons or whatever. And it's not just a resemblance, that would be likeness, uh, but they're actually, they, they are the same thing, which is just so, I can't believe that just ontologies exist on bookshelves to be looked at. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating that the application of philosophy and library sciences, it really is. Um, yeah, I think that I would like to uh, explore the story that uh, Mauricio Almeida describes in his uh, brief paper, Revisiting Ontologies, a Necessary Clarification. Um, his goal in this paper is to basically argue that we should be understanding ontology interdisciplinary or, or across disciplines uh, because so many different disciplines make use of this term. Um, really, it's philosophy that got the ball rolling. Um, but when it comes to library sciences, he, he paints a really nice picture of showing how ontology has developed and how that uh, plays out on the shelf. So do you, do you mind if I try describing the story and you can tell me how, how decent a job I do? Yeah, yeah, go, go, go for it. Okay. 
so Almeida starts by uh, taking a look at um, ontology all the way back to Aristotle. And, you know, there were definitely attempts at classifying kinds of being before Aristotle. But Aristotle systematizes it in a way that just rev- changed everything. I mean, to the point where we were using his logic until the mid-1900s, like his formal logic for 2,000 years because it was so watertight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for real, it's amazing. Um, but really what what Aristotle gives us when it comes to uh, ontology and classification is classifying the world outside of us. So there are there are kinds of things out in the world that we can talk about in specific ways, specific different ways, and those different ways tell us something distinct about what it is to be those things. Okay, so that sounds really abstract, but I think we can nail it down a little bit by just thinking about a human being. So I can talk about the essence of a human being. That's kind of hard to nail down. He's going to land on something like a rational animal. Yeah. Um, That's abstract, but we can get more specific. There's lots of other ways to talk about a human being. So there's uh, uh, where is that human being? Um, When is that human being? Kind of weird, but when was that human being alive? Uh, What is that human being doing? What, uh, what, how big, how small, what are they holding? What are they doing? What are they sitting on? And all of these different ways of talking about things in the world to Aristotle, they point to actual categories, actual classes, actual kinds of things out in the world that are there for us to discover and organize. So from Aristotle, we get an idea of, frankly, like an objective world out there for us to put into neat, tidy boxes that are not very neat and tidy, but that's okay. Okay, so that's what we get from Aristotle. (laughs) Well, well, and and like uh, uh, something that when you're, especially when you're talking about what is a human being, but doing things like size and like when, when they lived like that, that is um, in, in one of the articles, uh, I believe it was the first one. It was um, talking about triangulation and yeah. how uh, meaning is derived by the apparent proximity or difference among items. So like in a case of like, what is a human would go like, or, or like, okay, we have a human, Irish ancestry lives in New York City, 1800s. So we'd go like, he's a United States citizen. He, you know, like, like we start to, by triangulating different aspects of him, we, a, a picture is formed and then we mm-hmm. can categorize him. Absolutely. And, and not only are these just merely descriptions about a person, but these are, these are categories of being for that person. They are, Mm -hmm. they are, they are, yeah, it's, it's, it's an almost metaphysical role that's being played um, when we, when we distinguish this person with, I'm going to use the word description again, even though I didn't, I just said they're not descriptors, but when we, (laughs) when we put these descriptors on a person, we're not just adding labels, we're actually saying something about the nature of this being. Right? Yeah. We're talking about what these things are in the world, not just how we talk about them, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's and how that is done. Like, like we're we're talking on a more philosophical, but like once you start putting things on a shelf, like that same triangulation happens. Of like, we have a work, uh, a, 
a book? How, how, how do we categorize this book? How do we, what is its, what is its likeness? What is its, you know, what, what is it like? What is it different from, uh, what is its descriptors? Like, what is it, you know, when was it published? Who was it published by? Where was it published? What's the content? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all those things go into us then deciding what category does this book fit into? Um, and for some stuff that can be seem relatively easy of like, you know, if we have a history book about Russia and so war, like that's pretty easy. But like, what about, what about if a book is about multiple things? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was actually just going to ask this, like, so something about, uh, there's, there's something about, uh, maybe digitization and hashtags that almost makes this easier because now I can just have a whole bunch of different tags that can interconnect and uh, uh, I don't know, point me to the same, I could end up at the same book, let's say from different roots. Uh, uh, if I was, if I was, if I wanted to. Uh, a a great example, actually what you were describing to an extent is called uh, folksomet- folksomet- oh God. <laughs> folksonomies. God. Uh, uh, which is, is to an extent like uh, um, we're going to talk about this later, but uh, similar to uh, like user warrant, where the user has a say in how things are categorized. Where like an, an example of this would be like if you go like user created tags. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if somebody reads a book and goes, uh, here's a tag about the book, uh, male protagonist. Let's just say. That's a tag. And other people also read that book and go like, male protagonist, that's a good tag. And they 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 upvote that or whatever. Or, you know, you, you can have multiple tags on a, uh, uh, on a work that go beyond what the cataloger initially added. Um, because catalogers cannot add every conceivable thing or part, you know, controlled vocabulary to a single thing due to time. Uh, whereas like users can add that. And then you have stuff where it's like, okay, I'm looking for male protagonist. Uh, you click on, you click on that tag and all the books tagged male protagonist will show up in your search. So you can end up at the same book that is categorized completely different by the cataloger. Mm-hmm. So like the cataloger might have it under uh, uh, historical fiction or, or like, I don't know, like war fiction or, you know, some kind of genre term fantasy uh, is how it's categorized in the system. But through those user-defined tags, you have an entirely different route to that work. Yeah. That, okay. So that makes sense to me when thinking about, okay, there are all of these different um, facets or different categories that apply to a single being because there are all of these genuinely different ways to be this one thing. Uh, Not only is the human being a human being, but they are a musician, they are young, they live here, they are doing this, they are doing that. And I I feel like I I could find, you know, this text from any of those roots. Now, I have a question about putting books on a shelf. Um, Yeah. When it when it comes to that, what's the buck stop when it comes to thinking about where an item ends up physically? 
Um, is it almost like that? That's the main ontological category. We could almost think of it that way. Um, so something that that spans two topics. Here, here's a history of music, or 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 music of history. Where is what shelf is it going to go on? Um, how does that kind of buck stop decision get made? Uh, if I remember correctly, the the kind of idea is like the rule of threes if i remember it was something like that where the idea is like it depends how much of the content within something is devoted to one topic and that determines where it will end up to an extent so like if you have a book that's on two topics say two-thirds of the book is about a single topic you would go with that as your main categorization um there's also uh, like there, there are ways to basically add additional numbers depending on the category, like depending on the um, indexing or uh, classification system, there are ways to add additional numbers to represent that this book has two topics within it. Okay. Uh, but, 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 but you're right. Like one of the, th- there is, so the digital world, uh, this is just like an aside a bit outside of epistemology, but the digital world has opened up, categorization or like like classification indexing in the sense that a user can add a press of a button create their own digital bookshelf if you understand what i mean as in like i can go like give me books on these topics between these times um about the like and show show them to me so I can browse a digital bookshelf of my own making that is organized according to what I want. But physical space is obviously not as malleable as digital space. There has to be a spot on the shelf and the for, for your books, and that can be the only spot on that shelf for that book to go. And when users come in, they have to deal with the physical classification that we choose. Uh, they can't rearrange the entire shelf to their whims so the, yeah they're the 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 tyranny of physical space to an extent uh so we have to make choices where it's like you know if a book is 50 percent one topic and 50 percent another topic how do we deal with that uh and to an extent it's up to the indexer to to make a call uh which is why you often see for like LCC, like Library of Congress and, and DDC, like you might find, go to two different libraries and find different, different numbers for them, mm-hmm. especially LCC, because LCC is meant to allow the people putting a book on a shelf to be like, oh, okay, I want it specifically here. And it gives you tools through number building to make sure that the book ends up exactly where you want it to. Okay. okay. Um, but it is to an extent tailored to your individual library. See, even even the way that you just described that of what if a book is, you know, 50% music and 50% history, there's something um, slightly objective about that description in the sense that uh, uh, here we're talking about page, amount of pages or amount of words dedicated to this. Whereas, you know, I can imagine a book that is uh, 80% of the content is about history and 20% of the content is about music, but the thesis of the book is music. And so that is actually the meaning of it. And 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 so are we talking about amount of time dedicated to something or amount of space dedicated to something versus what the thrust of the, of, uh, of the work yeah. is for? Yeah, yeah. You, you make a very good point of like, what what is the what is the purpose of the book? Because if the book is ultimately about music, 
then it would probably, you know, probably end up in the music section. But it's almost one of those cases of like, theoretically, we're talking about it. And I'm like, I don't know, this is kind of tough <laughs> to answer. But put that book in front of me. And I could probably have you an answer in like five minutes where I'd flip <laughs> through the book and I'd read the introduction maybe and, and just kind of get a general sense of like, okay, what's in this book? And then I'd sit down and I'd classify it. Uh, but when you're talking in like theory, it's 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 a lot more difficult. Sure. But but I, I think we'll start transitioning over to epistemology. Yeah, yeah. That that actually works nicely. And and I, I, I didn't finish going through the Almeida paper, but it actually takes a turn towards epistemology, which if it's okay with you, I, I kind of want to continue on that stream. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just give a brief definition of epistemology and then the Please. floor is all yours. Please. Um, so uh, Philippe defines epistemology as dealing with four different areas, obtaining and justifying knowledge, empirical investigation of knowing uh, across a variety of disciplines, philosophical analysis of knowing and related ideas of consciousness, beliefs, and so on, overcoming uh, the problem of the external world, how can we distinguish knowledge from opinion, and how does knowledge originate? Um, so like, that's a lot of words to say, like, it's all about knowledge. <laughs> uh, knowledge and knowing. Absolutely, uh, it, absolutely. It, it is is the uh, is the ultimate thing. I hope I was accurate with that. I was a little little wordy. No, you certainly dead on. Epistemology is the study of knowledge, which seems wild because it seems like a study is knowledge. And-, <laughs> and, and, and and just to give like a brief thing within library science, it's important, or and, and like organization in general is what is knowledge and how do users arrive at knowledge. So, and, and that's a big thing because like libraries are built and classification and indexing systems are built to uh, uh, make it extru- as easy as possible, as well organized as possible for users to walk in to a library or any information system and find what they are looking for. So how do we design the best classification systems to meet our users' needs? And part of that is understanding what is knowledge and, and how do users arrive at knowledge? Like what, how do they look for it uh, and, and structuring it in a way that meets, meets those needs. So like, that's obviously like a big thing and, and goes into multiple topics, not just like how we arrange the bookshelves, but like, uh, especially in our digital world uh, or actually even before a digital world, like uh, uh, building systems like card catalogs and so on that allow people to uh, 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 very quickly because they can't browse an entire library. You know, they, they want to be like, hey, I need a short list of this stuff. Uh, and yeah, that's what it's all about. Anyway, continue, Lindsay. Sorry. No, I think it's so interesting that you just described epistemology's role in, in library sciences as, as uh, people who enter libraries are looking for knowledge. And that's so fast. Like, that's so fascinating to me because when I was thinking about epistemology in terms of library sciences, I was thinking, okay, how do we define knowledge so that we know how to uh, categorize works that are supposed to, you know, offer knowledge to people? So, you know, the user is kind of in there, but at the end, um, that's so that's so, inter- <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> so just it's really it's really applied philosophy. So I guess what Aristotle gave us is understanding categorization 
and knowing the world as an objective thing out there to be discovered. And what Kant and Husserl give us, at least according to Almeida, is turning knowledge more inward or looking at what humans can know uh, and and what, yes, what we want to know, but I guess more what we are capable of knowing. So as opposed to uh, looking out at the world as full of categories and kinds and classes for us to discover, rather we look inward at what our minds are capable of and are capable of knowing and thinking of our minds as world builders. Um, So I don't look out into the world that is there for me. In fact, my mind makes the world as the data is given to me or something (laughs) like this. And then Husserl makes it even weirder and goes, oh, as a first person being, I can conceive of of things. We're going to talk about phenomenology now. It's going to get very abstract. Uh, But really, it turns turns knowledge towards us again. What do we want to know? What are we capable of knowing? And again, I mean, that seems really, really relevant to – like you were saying, kind of the the limitations of physical space, let's say. When I'm when I'm organizing a library, I I don't want to just put everything that's out in the world. There needs to be a purpose. There needs to be I'm trying to learn a specific thing or I want this library to represent, you know, XYZ, whatever, whatever the subject matter is. Um and that has to be focused on what it is we actually want to learn. Um you know, even a little bit future looking too. kind of part of what's also fascinating about your area is that not only do you need to organize stuff for today and users today, but for what people might want to know tomorrow. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, uh, like libraries and information systems are always um, trapped by uh, the world moves fast and, and the world moves even faster now. So you build a controlled vocabulary and then in 10, 20 years, well, like less, those terms are outdated or offensive or whatever. But we're also constantly fighting, especially now, uh, reduced budgets, a lack of time just in general, mm-hmm. like like uh, mm-hmm. short-staffed forever. Um, so we build a system and that system to an extent lasts 100, 200, 300 years, uh, exaggerating a bit. Like DDC has been around for a while. Definitely not like 300 years though, I don't think. And there are issues with things like DDC, like in how it prioritizes certain uh, uh, ways of, of knowing or, or certain areas. Like, like an easy example is uh, the section on religion uh, 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 Christianity has like five different sections and then every other religion is basically put into the other religion section, mm. mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, again, it like reflects Dewey who made it and, and, and his worldview and everything else like that. But like, despite its faults, it is still a good system. And it is also to an extent a system that it would be too expensive to replace um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or to be even more specific. It's um, to anybody who wants to make a better system, 
good luck. Like, mm. <laughs> like good luck building a universal system that accounts for everybody's world experience without prioritizing one thing over another. And that's where we get into like how context, like with epistemology, how context is critical and how meaning is created and transmitted where like it's your audience that you're serving, your, your patrons and and their worldview is critical to how you kind of should design slash serve them. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So I have a question. Yeah. When you are thinking of you, the the users of a library, are you thinking of an idealized individual who is like there to seek knowledge and this, that, and the other? Or are you looking at the ways that individuals are using this library, this system? Uh, I, I, I would take the more pro- pragmatic approach of libraries exist within a physical community same with other information organizations and um you know to an extent lis is like like uh social sciences like like you do uh i mean one of my courses last semester we uh you know learned about the stats horrible i hate stats uh Mm -hmm. uh things like how do you run uh, a survey um, how do you interpret the data from a survey? How do you, because that stuff is so important to understanding your user base so that you can serve them better. Like, like data, data is a big part of that. We're like, we, we don't serve an idealized patron. We serve real patrons who come in and, and especially with the reality of, budgets and and and, um having to justify like that's that's one of the big things about you know like we're we're dipping a bit into like problems of 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 librarianship in general but you have to justify yourself to the people who give you money absolutely no it it still feels like a little bit like a bit of a balancing act between you have real actual users looking for certain things and you want to provide that for them but you also don't want to be at like the whims and the mercy of those yes. users um i'm I, I you know i i imagine like the the social whims of canceling somebody and like burn all these books like no like what when, yes. when does the library put its foot down and and, and you've actually sort of interrupt, like you've hit on another very important thing of we serve our users like, like one of the struggles in libraries is like understanding, okay, we serve our users. What is our role? Are we merely receptacles for our users' desires? As in they come in and they say, we want X, Y, and Z book. And we provide exactly what they want and that's all we provide. Or are we, you know, because libraries used to be actually much more um, morally like educators, as in, we don't want to give our patrons trashy books. Like we want to give them like maybe to start them off. We give them some easy stuff, but we want to build them up to reading classical works, of mm. fine literature of the Western world, but like much more like moralizing mm. in that sense. And then that changed over time. And, and that's where we would go to like, if we had more time, I'd say like, you know, the ALA and they're, they're the number one thing being access to information would be the overriding 
thing of we provide all viewpoints and all things and we try to serve our users but also try to serve not just patrons who come to our library but also potential patrons that would want to come to our library right and in the case of what you were saying if, if somebody came in and was like well we want to burn your books we would point to the ala code or the the canadian version and say well no our overriding principle is freedom and uh, like freedom to information and freedom to access information uh we're not burning books uh please mm, leave mm. <laughs> um i i have i have a question that is uh related but off topic can i ask it yeah absolutely okay how is a library different from a museum i guess in terms of okay i guess you can't take the stuff out of the museum so let's take yeah, that away uh, yeah, but in terms of one. goals <laughs> uh uh museums so what I would say is museums are dedicated to um, physical artifacts, uh, oftentimes extremely rare, unreproducible. You know, you, we can't just make a second Mona Lisa for anybody to rent. But like for most books within a library, you know, there's, there's tons of those. And, and the big thing is, of course, is like museums are often dedicated to a singular purpose. What I would say is like, so like within the region of Waterloo, there's the like Ken Sealing Museum and that is dedicated to the history of Waterloo. It will reject things from other, um, it, it, if you give it an artifact from the, the second world war in Germany, they're going to go like, well, that's not our purview. Okay. We don't want it. Whereas like a library deals in like, like it reflects its community and it answers to its community and it has books in all topics ready to lend out for them to use slash rent. I'm trying to get at a more concise, like uh, I feel like I'm just throwing out descriptors, but. Well, there does seem to be, um, um, uh, I hate to use the word agenda, but there does seem to be a bit of an agenda with a museum where we have something that we want to, you know, specific artifacts or stories that we want to share um, yeah. For people who come here, whereas with a library, it seems almost inversed a little bit of we have all of these things for you to access and use. Yeah. Um, but, okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's a little bit off track. I just it popped into my mind and it was kind of... Yeah, no worries. Oh, let's, let's, uh, yeah, let's start transitioning to equivalence. Any final thoughts on epistemology? Absolutely. Um. Or, no, absolutely. Let's make that transition. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I guess... I just want to stress how fascinating I find it that you are applying, not only trying to make sense of ontology and epistemology in the sense of how do we divide uh, concepts and things and ideas and whatever. How do we how do we divide these up and differentiate them? And also, how do we find what makes them the same? Um, how do we understand what it is we know and want to do want to know and may want to know and not only are you trying to do all that but you're trying to provide it to people right now you're trying to anticipate what people are going to want later um and it comes back down to topics in philosophy that we've been trying to grapple with for the last 2500 years if not much longer much longer before yeah. the written word um but it it's 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 fascinating to me that the way that books are going on shelves 
and hashtags are being written online, <laughs> we can find how and why that's happening in Aristotle or from Aristotle, from Kant, from Wittgenstein, from Husserl. It's it's very, very interesting, the, the connection between philosophy and library science, at least at this very like ontology, epistemology level. Yeah, yeah. Like when it comes to classification indexing, and indexing, and as I said in the opening, that's why I really wanted you on, on board for this, because I was like, there's, I feel like there's so much here. And there's a lot here that obviously, like, I don't understand, not doing <laughs> deep studies in philosophy. And uh, yeah, I really wanted to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. Okay, let's turn to equivalence, because this is amazing <laughs> that you have to think about this. Yeah, yeah. So, so equivalence, I think, is at least with the readings that that that, uh, that, I, that I chose for this one, is some of the most mind-bending stuff here. Definitely when I was reading reading this stuff, I was like, my head was hurting. Because, uh, so what? what is equivalence? So within library science, I've mentioned the term once or twice already in the podcast, there's a thing called controlled vocabulary. And a controlled vocabulary is a set of a thesauri of terms chosen to represent certain subjects or whatever so rather than uh, a, a free-for-all things will be classified or, or or tagged with something from this specific vocabulary so it might just be like so the proper terminology for um say you're looking for world war one books the like controlled vocabulary would be like world war one dash 1914-1918 and you would click on that controlled vocabulary and uh or like that term and you would get everything that is under that tag uh in, in a sense you can think of it as a cataloger set tag and it, it it means that there's consistency in the in the terms used so that people coming in can for example, click like, give me the thesauri, browse through it, go like, okay, I'm looking for uh, a, a library science epistemology or something like that. And and it would, everything relating to that topic would be under that term, whatever the term is that they select. They selected for that database or um, system. This is important in, uh, equivalence is important in classification systems because it's like, what words are alike? What words are equal to another? word and uh, 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 how many things need to be like another thing in order for them to be equivalent to one another I'm, I'm thinking trying to think of a good word well one of the examples that's given is car and automobile i was actually just about to say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah you beat me to it yeah car and automobile both mean the same thing you can call them equivalent terms car and truck not equivalent terms you could probably say truck is a type of automobile and thus uh the hierarchical term like a hierarchy is formed of you start with automobile or car and then you go down to truck but wait tepper does that make truck a type of car is that right i guess that oh, is right no nah, i actually don't know now I'm like, are we talking about a sedan or is a car the wide term for trucks and vans and everything? See, yeah, this but, is why but, this is crazy. But, yes, and, and that this is a perfect example of why equivalence is such an interesting term within, like, topic within library science because it's like, okay, what is an equivalent to another thing? 
how many how how much does a thing need to be like another thing in order to be called an equivalent term and equivalent terms are often like like uh, uh, Library of Congress headings uses like equivalent terms where they'll do stuff like see also this or did you mean this or um, yeah it, it's and, and oftentimes it's like uh, within controlled vocabulary that's very important because say you have a controlled vocabulary that is car. Or, 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 or let's go a one hierarchy lower. Truck. But somebody's talking about a sedan. Why can the article about a sedan not go under the truck heading? Like, like what is it equivalent to a truck? What's the differences between a sedan and a truck? Yeah, they both uh, have what four is it? Wheels. Likeness. They're both metal. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, yeah. So you start getting into... Uh, why should an article go under one controlled vocabulary term versus another or go under, you know, one heading versus another or like within DDC, yeah, like one one topic or another. What is an equivalent term? And, and, and that's like harder than it seems because you start getting into the example my professor used for this was like shapes and 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 angles and like, you know, when does a triangle turn into something else? And yeah, it, it, it was a lot. It was a lot, um, which is really why I wanted to bring you on because I'm like equivalent. Equivalence is hard. Uh, and the articles we read for this were hard. <laughs> At least I felt that way. Yeah, equivalence equivalence certainly is hard. <laughs> I'm not going to question you there. Um, and in fact, the more that you talked about it, I was like, wait a minute, Tepper, I think you might like uh, formal logic because <laughs> it's very logic-y. Uh, um, <laughs> I, think, I think in some ways, um, helpful or not, some of the ideas about ontology can 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 perhaps help us uh, at least detangle some of these questions about equivalence because um, in in a certain straightforward sense i could say oh a term is equivalent if uh they point to the same being or the same category uh close enough or identically perhaps if we want to take it you know as strictly as aristotle takes it but Wittgenstein gives us a little bit more leeway with a familial resemblance. So I could say something like uh, 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 navy blue and dark blue. Um, those are going to do the same uh, job, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, They're pointing yeah, yeah. to the same thing. Um, but something like uh, baby blue and um, neon blue or something or, like that. Or those teal are, or something. Or teal. Ooh, let's add some green in there. Very confusing. Um, those Those circles aren't concentric right they're going to be a little bit more spread apart um but there's something there's something maybe about ontology that can perhaps help us um especially if we're thinking about an objective world out there because then we can almost understand equivalent words as different names for the same thing right ah um, yeah 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 in the in, in at least the identical sense um uh of different names for the same for the same thing and when I say thing, I mean being out there in the world, an item, an object in the world that we can point to um, or identify. And, and we could perhaps both say different words to label it and be like, oh, yeah, we agree that that, that, that is the same thing. But I think ontology can get a little bit messy, especially when it comes to um, more abstract 
ideas uh, or abstract concepts? Or what I would say is what came to mind is, uh, and we'll talk about this in the next section in more detail, is um, words that seem equivalent, but there's societal connotations around each. So mm. in one of the articles we read about warrant, there was discussion about the term gypsy. Mm. And, and that was being used by as a folksonomy by a, a fan fiction website. And the uh, volunteers who, who run it, run the website uh, and help keep it organized, were talking about, okay, we don't, that, that term is kind of offensive. Like, you know, and we're not going to get into that, but like, they were like, what's an equivalent term to gypsy? And they're like, Roma, but then they're like, but that has other connotations. And, and, and that also got into them talking about like, well, what do users see when they see the term Roma versus the term gypsy? So they are to an extent equivalent terms, but it also depends on societally who, who, who's looking at those terms, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, where it might be offensive to one group, but another group would be like, well, that's what we've always said. Mm-hmm. I think that that idea of um, context is really interesting when it comes to equivalence because, yeah, like like you say, terms that were once considered equivalent are no longer because of the um, societal implications or something that changed in history that is this word is a no-no and this word we're okay with. Um, yeah. Uh, or, or just the meanings of words change. And so the idea that equivalence can be known in this – a priori context free yes logical yes. way it's just, it's just the definitions we don't need any context or something like that we want to say no the these words really exist in the world and they change based on how uh how people use them and why yeah, and, uh, and, and what is I, I i i appreciated the conclusion of that article that was talking about that where they just went like it's never been a case like it's never been a priori like ever never uh, uh, yeah, it, it's all it's all subjective it's all context dependent like so so context dependent and and uh, yeah who what you get when you look at something will change depending on the group who you have looking at it absolutely and and i mean let, let, let me make a very a very general example philosophically so my, my phd is on aristotle and aristotle specifically on his his ethical works and Clearly, at the time that Aristotle was writing, he was writing for rich young men. That's who mm. his audience was. He was talking to rich young men. But there's so much good philosophy in those ethical works that we choose to read him when he says man or person or anything. We'll choose to read it as person in the sense of human being, which will include men and women and people of different races and ethnicities that he would not have recognized. We opened up those terms based on the way that we understand humanity now <laughs> instead yes. of the way that they, they understood it, you know, 2,500 years ago. I, I mean, I mean, like, look at the popularity of the term guys. It's within its definition, it refers to men only within its actual use, it's basically a gender neutral term at this point. You know, if I walk into a room and say, hey guys, both men and women are going to go like, oh, hey. 
at least that's been my experience. I don't know. Maybe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe it's been different for you, but like that, that's been the general experience. So we have like a definitional version of this. And then we have a societal version of this, this, this word uh, and how it's being used. Mm-hmm. And so now is the term, if we want to, you know, root this back in equivalence, is the term like guys, does that point to men or does that point to people? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and what I would say is, is like, if I was building a thing, like a, like a system that uh, matches words to their equivalents, I would probably, at least within, within our, our, our Western context, have guys point to they or 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 some other you know equivalent of like group of people absolutely uh because that's the context now that it is used as uh in the same way that aristotle way we read it as person not men Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. our, our understanding changes over time and we reinterpret things um any final thoughts on equivalence then we can move on to uh I think the most interesting topic. <laughs> um, I just think that I agree with the side of the argument when it comes to equivalence in terms that set that is arguing that um, it is context dependent. And again, it seems like library sciences are playing a balancing act of paying attention to the way that terms are used now, the way that they have been used and perhaps the way that they will be used. Um, and I think at least from from what you've shared with me um, and explained to me and what I've read, those that are arguing that library sciences need to be done dynamically um, as opposed to a static, rigid way that's meant to last forever. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that seems to be the not only the more nuanced, but in fact, like the more durable or long-lasting uh, uh, route to take, especially when it comes to something like equivalence, when it's when clearly words words change their meaning. Yeah, and 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 also like I think more and more like the 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 the, the holy grail of classification was a universal system that that the idea of you could go into a library anywhere in the world and and it would be organized the same. And, and and it's a beautiful dream. Don't get me wrong. Like, oh man, that that that's a beautiful dream. But but I think, especially with the criticism of uh, uh, Library Congress and and DDC that we're seeing, which is like I understand their their position absolutely. Uh, more and more, it's no library, no classification system can meet the needs of every single user. Uh, it, it's simply not possible. And and I think out out of that realization we've seen some very interesting stuff so there's a particular system called um john deere classification if i remember correctly is how how is its name hey everyone just a quick correction here the system is called the brian deere classification system in the stress of the moment i called it the john deere system it is not called that it is the brian deere classification system and it is a system built by Aboriginals for Aboriginal libraries, and it, it, it's uh, it's it's similar to LCC in, in certain respects. But the way that the knowledge is like the categories of knowledge are is built for Aboriginal peoples. Uh, I should show you a, 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 a link to it 
sometime, but it, it's, yeah, it's it'd built, be very interesting. It, it's built totally different and it's built for their use and it works for their use. Um, and in the same way, like a library, you know, here in Waterloo, it, it wouldn't use the John Deere system because it, that wouldn't work for their audience and for the knowledge that they have. Do you do you think that um, the the goal of a universal system is one that should be abandoned? Like, do you think that it is not possible? And and I ask that for a specific reason. So there are there are various uh, let's say epistemological systems and philosophy that even though they're aware that we're only partway through, you know, knowing all there is to know, we're, 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 you know, it's a process and we're only in the middle of it. And, you know, who knows when we're going to reach the end of it, but having that goal of say absolute knowledge or, or universal knowledge where, where nothing more could be explained. That's the, that's the, that's the, Goal, you know, those I, are the goalposts. However vague, however whatever, but that's yeah. that's what we're motivating to. What's what we're moving towards, and I think it's almost for the reason of having a having a shared goal, right? Yeah. Do you think yeah. that that should be abandoned? Like, do you think that it's? A- <sighs> I, I, I'm I'm of two minds to this. On one hand, one one side of me is saying universal system is impossible. There, there's no way that a system can incorporate every single viewpoint. Uh, be respectful to every single group, whatever, uh, 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 without, I don't know, losing itself or being useless. Hmm. But on the other hand, as you were saying, the idea, like the goal of a universal system that uh, uh, categorizes the entire universe of knowledge within itself is a very beautiful and noble goal. So, yeah, I, I, uh, to answer that, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's hard. It's hard because I go like on one hand, I look at stuff like John Deere system and I go like, I think that's really cool and there should be more of that. But on the other hand, the idea of like a universal system and you can walk in any library ever and it, it's all organized the same is also kind of utopian and beautiful. I don't know. You're sounding like a real philosopher now. It's hard. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Uh, all right. Uh, it's time for some warrant, I think. This is going to be good. Okay. <laughs> warrant, I think, is the most in- single most interesting topic in um, philosophy of library science. What is warrant? Warrant is... The rational justification for the introduction of a term or concept into controlled vocabulary. It's the authority that classificationists invokes first to justify and subsequently to verify decisions about what classes slash concepts to include in the system, in what order classes slash concepts should appear in the schedules, what units classes slash concepts are divided to, how far subdivisions should proceed, and where synthesis is available, whether citation orders are static or variable, and similar questions. In a broader sense, TLDR, the justification for using a specific term to represent a specific concept is warrant. The way that I, the metaphor I would use for warrant is warrant is the foundation of a classification system. It is the thing that a whole classification system is built on. 
it is used to justify every single aspect of a, of a classification system and its decisions of those making it. What do you think of that? Yeah. So one of the things that really stuck out, stuck out to me um, uh, in exploring this idea was was the concept of warrant as the reasons to accept an argument. So thinking of this philosophically, um, yeah, I can understand an argument just purely formally um, in terms of its logic um, and and its structure. Um, but when it comes to uh, uh, premises that have to do with, you know, the actual world or, or an argument that actually makes me want to believe something beyond you have to accept this because of its, <laughs> you know, its structure, whatever premises get laid out, I, ha- I have to have a reason to believe them. And that's, I think, from what I could tell, that seems to be what warrant is doing for terms. So when I, when I, or, you know, why is this term included in this library? Well, you know, when I ask why, the answer is whatever the warrant for it is. Um, does that, do I, do I have that right? I, I, I think so. I, I think it's like, yeah, like, like, like similar to what you're saying, the way I imagine it is, is somebody goes like, why is this, why is this library organized the way it is? God damn it. Like, what are you doing? And the librarian would go like, well, our purpose, our warrant, is to do X or to do Y. Therefore, we have done these other things to fulfill X and Y. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like the Library of Congress is the national library for the United States. When somebody, say, goes to the head librarian of the, of the Library of Congress and says... Why are American astronauts the default for the section of astronaut in in Library of Congress? They go like, "Well, sir, we're an American library. Like, like, like we, we it's an American library system. It's meant for Americans. They're not trying to create a universal the the, the uh, system of knowledge, mm. uh, but rather one for uh, an American context." So what I what I found very uh, interesting about this was was the development of warrant or warrants. Um, so again, kind of mapping on to the development of ontologies and epistemologies from um, objective and outside of us to turning towards what we can and want to know, and then why we want to know it and what that what what that knowledge would mean for us maybe even um yeah is just so interesting so you know the the uh from what i i gathered from um some of these readings was that originally warrant was conceived of at in that objective way of well we're going to use the words that appear in these documents <laughs> yes that's why we included them look at them they're here but then it turns out that a lot of you know authors authors can have questionable motives themselves or use words that are, you know, we don't so much like anymore. And there's reasons to, uh, to revise um, or to entirely change. And so the idea of different kinds of warrants, like epistemic warrant or ethical warrant or cultural warrant um, to either challenge that objective, I think it was called literary or scientific warrant, um, or or be applied in addition to. Yeah, uh, yeah, they they were they were kind of the first two. Yeah, I just think it's fascinating. 
uh, just to give some brief definition, because there's there's many different types of warrant because there's many different purposes for uh, uh, libraries and other information organizations. But literary warrant was like the classification decisions are derived from the scholarship being organized. An example would be a chemistry library would not need gold as a subject heading if there were no monographs on individual elements being published. So if we don't have a book on gold, why do we need a heading for gold? We wouldn't bother. Scientific warrant um, or scientific consensus warrant is like organizing knowledge in individual works according to the contemporary scientific conclusions on the relationship between fields uh, and the uh, nature of knowledge. Um, so you would like go to like experts saying, go like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm organizing several books on chemistry. How, what, how do these subjects relate to each other? Uh, in a sense, you're going to somebody else to tr get them to triangulate books for you. Um, mm -hmm. To go back to uh, epistemology, where you'd go like, how does this thing relate to this thing or that thing? But there's also several other types of warrants, such as like user warrant, which is organizing knowledge according to user expectations and logic. Uh, so folksonomies, uh, or like to use the example of a fan fiction site, uh, users use the term gypsy. Therefore, the term gypsy is allowed to remain as a tag um, or a uh, like a, a way of classifying. This, of course, very obviously... I'm, anybody listening can understand mm -hmm. the problems with that. Um, <laughs> and then that goes into the next one, which is ethical warrant, is that like that terms should be changed depending on the ethics of the terminology. You know, if there's a term that is extremely offensive, even if it is used by your user base, your ethical warrant would say, we change that. And if people ask you why, you would say, well, we have an ethical warrant to, you know, uh, make libraries welcoming and friendly to people of all groups and that kind of stuff. And then there's other things. There's like institutional warrant, which is like, would be like built for a specific organization. So if you work in like a law office, your library would be built and categorized in a way that allows lawyers to find the things that they need. That kind of stuff. And, and that's where, like, why warrant is so important is because it informs so many of the other decisions that are made with classification. Hmm. And one of the articles talked about is that, like, there can be multiple warrants with a, in, within a singular system. So you could have, say, a literary warrant. So, you know, you're organizing according to the literature that you have, but you'd also have an ethical warrant. Uh, or you'd have a user warrant and an ethical warrant, and you're trying to balance both of them, or you're like trying to respond to your user needs if you've got a user warrant, and also your ethical needs with your ethical warrant. Um, it's it's an extremely fascinating subject. Yeah, it really is, and and I mean, so I'll I'll say this um, as an ethicist, ancient ethicist. So I'm coming <laughs> at it from a bit of a weird place, but. I guess I have the most questions about ethical warrant um, simply because there are so many very different ethical systems that are not reducible to each other necessarily. Yeah. That I can't tell if when a library, let's say a library points to ethical warrant, if they're talking about like their own – their own library's decision to, I don't know, 
how they're going to be in the world or act in the world uh, in the in the right way, or if they're going to point to an ethical theory. Um, and uh, maybe I'm just not familiar enough with the literature in library sciences, which I'm 100% sure is the case. Uh, <laughs> but I'd, I'd be very curious to know about how they're talking about ethical warrant um, more broadly, because I think that what might get found is that ethical warrant will get broken up into utilitarian warrant, deontological warrant, virtue warrant, blah, 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 blah. So here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you practical examples okay. of discussions of ethics within library. At least I, I think this relates. Um, some of the biggest cases of library controversy in the past 20 years relate to two subjects transphobic books slash speakers anti-gay speakers slash books or organizations dealing with libraries the halifax library just this year had row over an anti anti-trans book that was uh on the shelves and they in their statement said well the book does not break any of our uh, rules like like the 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 policies that they have about content for the books on their shelves, and um, in a, in a similar way that other libraries have done, is they pointed to uh, that uh, their kind of like like their phil how would I say it like their um, values that they place on intellectual freedom and access to information as being the like one of the ultimate things that libraries deal with so they said like is this book harmful to to the trans community potentially maybe probably yes is that enough justification for us to remove it from the shelves no uh would be the answer because intellectual freedom overrides the harm that this book causes or the potential harm that this book causes. So I don't know if that example helps you at all. It answers a bit of a question in the sense that um, ethics is being conceived of as uh, the values that that particular library or network of libraries holds. Um, and I I don't want to say that that's a terrible definition of ethics in fact understanding ethics as like the values that you hold is a really useful way to you know make your way through the world and in fact i would love if more people would think about the values that they hold while they act <laughs> in the world wonderful way to be um but i i guess theoretically when we're talking about just a blanket statement like ethical warrant um it, it almost seems like that seems like a big term or a big yeah. and when i say big term i mean a wide term a big wide term um, that's going to cover a lot of different things and what I can imagine is two different ethical warrants uh, or two different libraries who who make decisions based on ethical warrant that are completely uh, contradictory for example mm. um, which because you know this library holds this set of values and this library holds this set of values this one prioritizes harm over you know, I don't know, freedom to information, which seems a little wild, but whereas another one doesn't. And now we have two opposite uh, uh, opposite decisions based on the same warrant, um, which 
I guess I worry about. I I I would I I'm curious to know where. Um, not that I'm looking for an answer from you right, right here, right now, but I'm curious to know where the discussions about ethical warrant, um, uh, w- where they've been, where they're heading, um, because I think that there's a lot more area for nuance um, uh, concerning that one specifically, at le- like concerning ethical warrant specifically, I should say. Yeah, and what I would say is is that this is a big area of um, I'm not – nearly well informed enough to answer your question uh uh, ethical warrant is kind of like a new thing to me in general like i only really got it from when we were setting up to do this project because i'm much more familiar with like literary warrant Mm -hmm. um and like user warrant uh because those are both much more easily discernible and Mm -hmm. understandable i I think they're also more in line with you know what the uh, original or earliest ideas of what a library should be and can be, um, you know, literary warrant and user warrant seem very in line with that. You know, yes. the original ideas of what what a library could be. Um, whereas, yeah, we've talked a lot about so far about um, the different ways that information that the the, the word that words can affect people and that information can be used or or weaponized or something like this or the way that terms develop over time from something that is everybody uses to something that nobody uses because we've all shifted about it yeah. and you know on this that I'm kind of pull, pulling a lot of different ideas but one of the reasons I asked what's the difference between a museum and a library is there seems to be in a certain sense because libraries are organizing and preserving knowledge, we don't want to – I don't want my library to change just because everybody's opinion on something right now has changed because that doesn't tell us about – you know, that potentially erases knowledge from the past, that uh, denies access to the future about something that we have hurt feelings about now. But at the same time, there needs to be, like you said – Libraries also need to be welcoming and for everybody. Um, and there are places where, you know, words genuinely, words and ideas genuinely do harm. And so, again, mm-hmm. it's this balancing act. Um, it's just, yeah, the, the, the idea of overlapping warrants is just, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. And again, yeah. practical decisions that you are making. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that's why I thought that article was really good at demonstrating how warrant works and and the struggle of warrant especially when you have multiple ones such as you know going with like user like the example of the fan fiction website where it's like on one hand they go we have a warrant like a user warrant to allow our users to define tags and this is how the whole system is organized but that sometimes means that there's offensive tags what do we do about that you know do we have an ethical warrant if there's an ethical warrant how do we handle the contradiction between our our two values here and and that discussion in the article was very good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i mean online databases really i think you can there's there's more space for nuance or space for growth yeah. because you can you can have something like oh did you mean this <laughs> or yes. perhaps you meant this um, or, or this can... is th- this is where equivalent terms or kind of yes. like work it work in absolutely where you go like you know, to me, like one of the great examples of equivalent terms is literally Google going, did you mean X or Y mm-hmm. uh, when you search for something and don't quite get it? And, and you're right. Like digital databases do have that extra advantage of 
being able to do that. Or, or like another thing where digital databases work really well is the fact that you can not only look for things, but actively state what you're not looking for. Yes. Um, so I can go on to certain databases and say like, give, give me this stuff. Don't give me any of this. I don't want any of that. I don't want to see it. And that like further narrows search results. Um, but that's a little harder to do with libraries, well, mostly physically. Uh, library yeah. databases are, are have come a long way. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. So I have a, a question about Warrant on like the practical side of things. Yeah. So if we're conceiving of as of Warrant as the justification for including a term or the reasons for 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 uh, including a term, um, when when we hear this, should we conceive of it almost as a checklist, so uh, a, a, a term that could, like, you know, that's up for being introduced uh, into this library or something like that. Does it have to meet a certain amount of criteria and then, yay, you pass the warrant test? Or is it more like an argument um, that's being made? I think it's much more like an argument being made. Because I feel like a checklist would be in, with the variety of terms and headings and that a, a a controlled vocabulary or like a like a system can have it would be extremely difficult to try to have a have a checklist that fits every situation mm. so i personally think it would be much more of like an argument um i, I think for example the way that that fan fiction the, the fan fiction example in that article handled it i wouldn't be surprised if that's how most classification discussions go which is, okay, we've got a term, we need to replace it. What do we replace it with? Well, okay, here's some options. Well, that doesn't quite fit because it's not an equivalent to that term. You know, and then we go back to equivalence and likeness and, and, and difference and, and try to like find a term that has as close a connotation to the term you're replacing without it necessarily being offensive or, or like for whatever reason you're choosing to update a term um, or add one. Um to try to uh, try to try to meet that criteria because yeah, I think a checklist just isn't flexible enough mm, mm. for the kind of stuff that they deal with. Um, now, when it comes to like changing terms, when they do it, justification for it, um, I don't think Library of Congress tells anybody why they do it. Uh, DDC, I'm not super familiar with like the authorities controlling DDC and whether things should be added or removed. Um, those are definitely areas that I should learn more about, but I got my hands full just learning how those systems work <laughs> in and of themselves before I even get into like, how, how are they organized? But yeah, I, I personally believe that it's probably just like a discussion based, like an argument based system. Okay. Okay. And I'm, I, I also assume then like behind closed doors in terms of this is how people doing the classifying are justifying what they're up to. Does that make yeah. sense? Like, like, what do you mean? Like, like that's how they justify what they're doing, or, or, or that these discussions about warrant are happening by the people that are, 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 again, I guess, doing this organizing. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's not discussions for the public. It's, it's how are we going to justify this system that we're organizing for you? But um, uh, uh, like among themselves, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, like yes, they're not, yes. they're not, they're not. Yeah, okay, okay, I understand. Yeah, they're not using 
warrant to justify themselves to the public. They're using warrant to justify why a term should be added among themselves as catalogers. Yes. Yeah. 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 I. 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 I think that that sounds right. Like, mo- most most of the public don't care enough about classification to uh, <laughs> want justification from uh, from the people who do it. Um, so I, I think it's much more, uh, yeah, it's much more for themselves and other catalogers to be like, yeah, no, like this is why we did what we did, or like among themselves. I've uh, I've spent the last decade of my life asking why questions, so I guess maybe I'm in I, I, I'm, I'm I'm approaching this a little bit differently <laughs> than the average member of the public, I guess. <laughs> Listen, I tell people like, oh, yeah, man, uh, uh, I, I love classification and indexing. And people just go to sleep. <laughs> they just go to sleep. Nothing boring about it. It's really fascinating stuff. Uh, yeah. It's like uh, uh, as, I was playing I was playing a, playing a video game recently and you visit like this, this big, huge fantasy library. And they were talking about how this like this like nation loves knowledge and collecting knowledge and storing it and everything else like that when they're describing it, i was like this must be a nightmare to index and catalog like, holy crap how do they, they this this is bad <laughs> like i heard i just heard how they were just doing the stuff and the amount of stuff they had and i went there's no way anybody in their right mind organized this. there's no way there's no way <laughs> this is so unrealistic i hate this <laughs> now, now i'm gonna get back to casting magic <laughs> <laughs> the uh, most unrealistic thing about your video game was the way that the library was organized. <laughs> well, it's like it's like at one point the character's like, "Yeah, go 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 look up, go look up uh, uh, the history of this thing," and the, and the books about the history of this of this nation are like in ten different locations in this library. And I'm just like, this is awful categorizing. <laughs> like, come on, whoever whoever is doing this cataloging needs to be fired. Um, amazing (laughs) yeah but uh, you know that's the kind of that's the kind of like eyes you get after you do do some cataloging and indexing work is you start looking at stuff and you're like no that's not how it should be or that's an interesting way of doing that um but yeah any any final thoughts on warrant i think i'm okay about warrant i just i i do think that it's it's genuinely very interesting to think about the reasons why a term is included in a library as an argument or, or rather, let me rephrase that the terms that are included in a library or that organize a library have an argument behind them. Mm. Put it that way. And that's yeah. what warrant is. Some and kind of justification exists for their. Inclusion. Absolutely. Yeah. As a philosopher, I'm happy to hear that uh, because I have to make my whole life is the library. And so knowing that the reason that things are the, the sorry, knowing that there is a reason why things are where they are uh, eases my mind a little bit. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. So th- those were our three topics. Thank you so much, everyone, for for listening. Uh, and, and Lindsay, thank you so much for, for coming on. This was, uh, this was a really great time. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for letting me, uh, offer, offer whatever I can offer. No, you, you, you helped clarify a lot of things and like, give me kind of like a look into the, the theoretical side of it, because it's like, like, as I was saying, it's, I'm, I'm, 
much more on the practical side of, of understanding and uh, pure philosophy can be sometimes hard to parse uh, for me at least. And I imagine the same for a lot of people. So something like this, I think is, uh, is, is very nice. And it, it was nice to have this, this nice long discussion with you. Absolutely. Uh, sorry for how long it ended up being. <laughs> uh, no, hey, hey, you know what? I, 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 I assume this would happen. I was like, I was like, well, no matter what I do, it's going to, it's going to end up long because there, there's, there's uh, so much to talk about. And like, honestly, like listeners, if you're interested in exploring this topic further, I'm hoping to have with this podcast included all the articles that we read, like, like, um, the citation information for all of the articles that we read. And I got to say every single one of them, hundred percent worth reading. Uh, very in-depth articles that give uh, very interesting looks at each of the three topics. And, uh, you know, if you have access to the Western Library, like go looking for more about this stuff. If you're if you're interested, there's a lot of neat material out there. Like this is honestly the barest introduction. There is so much that I don't know. There is so much that Lindsay doesn't know. Um, it's it's honestly like a bottomless, bottomless ocean of, of information uh so feel free to go exploring that's what libraries are for yeah so i I hope this uh piqued your interest and uh thank you again so much for listening have a good one been another episode of so what the podcast about library and information science research and why it matters so what is created and produced by students at the faculty of information and media studies at western university in london ontario find us online at so what.fims.uwo.ca 